Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, We are recording from my house, actually, uh, in Porkchop. My dog is sitting under uh, the table. It's going to be our little, I guess, podcast helper that may or may not uh, ruin the sound on this. We'll see how it goes. Or help the sound. Come on. (laughs) Help the sound with... Hopefully he doesn't just start barking in the middle of our analysis. If he doesn't like it, he might he might start <laughs> barking at us. I hope so. We need that kind of feedback in real time. <laughs> Although you are kind of hinting that this is going to be a bigger editing job for me. So now, now I'm not so sure about coming out to our Studio B. But it's good to be out here and it's good to see Porkchop again too. And it's good to be coming off of something positive to talk about after yeah. Sunday's game. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I get really into I, I feel like all the... Um, I really enjoy the whole looking at the standings and seeing what can happen on all the possibilities. So I really like this time of year. Really? And I think I oh. really I really enjoy that, yeah. That's interesting. I guess I'm so much more concerned in trying to figure out what the Timbers actually are. And it seems like a lot of the issues we've discussed throughout the year, for me, are way more overriding than are the Timbers, do the Timbers still have a chance to get the four or the three? Or are they going to drop to six? Like for me, it's like, can we decide if they're actually good? <laughs> let's let's talk about that first. Yeah, uh, that's probably the more important conversation. I, I still enjoy the looking at the standings. But let's talk about all of it. Um, and let's start with uh, the Timbers win over Real Salt Lake. They won three to zero at Providence Park. They clinched a playoff berth uh, with the win. I felt like my prediction was pretty close. I feel like it was really close. <laughs> so I predicted a 2-0 Timbers win. I thought for till the 87th minute that I was going to get <laughs> right. complete points on that. Uh, you predicted a D- that Diego Valeri gets back on the score sheet. Uh, let down by San Via so, Yeah. <laughs> oh, I almost call him, said Vieri too, like he's a host on the Food Network <laughs> or something like that. I had a lot of faith in Diego Valeri too. Um, not that he didn't have a, a really good game. He led the Timbers in almost every distribution category. Alas, I get a zero for that. Whose turn is it to give out points? Is it mine or yours? I don't know. Because I did we Why don't we just come to an agreement? We didn't then? predict. We didn't predict last week, right? So I I'm, yeah. I I think I'm 
forgotten. And I then we both just agreed to give each other nothing <laughs> for the week before. Well, you, can, so you, can give, you can give me. I mean, I'm giving, well, I would give you zero. How do you feel about 21 points? Uh-oh, Porkchop <laughs> is immediately saying this is too little, too few. Okay, 23 points. How do you feel about 23 points? Okay, I'll, I'll take it. 23 Good. points. He's, he's not coughing for that one. I know, he stopped a little bit. So our first piece of uh, producer feedback has led us into 23 points for her uh, Porkchop's owner and discussion of the game. Except for that half an hour in the middle, I thought it was a pretty convincing performance. So I guess I'll leave it up to you. Do you want to talk about that period of time just before halftime, extending until Diego Chara's goal? Or do you want to talk about the context around that span? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, th- I think we should hit on a little bit of both of mm-hmm. that. I mean, I think the Timbers, you know, they came out really well. They, they were clearly on the front foot throughout the first half. Um, it, it felt even before they scored their first goal, uh, Mabiala scored that they were going to, that they were going to score, and they were clearly the better team for thirty or so minutes uh, uh, into that game. Salt Lake definitely settled in to the game as the first half went along, and yeah, the, the beginning of the second half was worrisome. I, I mean, against a better team, uh, a better team might have punished the Timbers and, and found the equalizer there. I think it is overall a positive to see when a team is pushing um, and knocking on the door and trying to get that equalizer that the Timbers were able to find that counterattack goal to sort of put the game to bed. I think that's something a good teams have to do because there are going to be moments in any sort of game where the momentum sort of changes. I don't like how long the momentum changed. And I think the Timbers were somewhat lucky not to concede. Uh, But the fact that they were able to get that goal from Chara and put the game away pretty much on that. Uh, I think it's a really good sign. I can pretty much agree with everything you say. So why don't we break it down just chronologically and talk about that first half hour. Of course, you talked about Larry Smabiala converting off of the dead ball service from Diego Valeri from short range. Nice little composed finish past Nick Ramondo, making it one to nothing. But really, it was a dominant first 20, 25 minutes, maybe even 30 minutes. They let off a little bit after the goal went in. I was impressed not only with the level of execution of the Timbers, but I was also I don't know if concerned is the right word, but it was just such a basic plan. It was basically just kick it to RSL. We're going to play long to Jeremy Obobese. If he doesn't hold a possession, that's fine because we have gained all this territory and we really don't trust their ability to build play. And it was really evident early where Salt Lake was literally just kicking the ball out of bounds three times on very basic passes. But I think it really spoke to, I don't want to say disrespect because I think the Timbers respected Real Salt Lake. But I think it spoke to how little they were threatened by Real Salt Lake that they literally just kicked the ball to them and said, I think we're better off just with you with the ball close to your goal. <laughs> this is how we want to play this game. Yeah, I, I actually think let's bring in a question from Dan here. We had a little bit lower on our sheet, but I think it fits. Um, he asks how much of the past uh, 180 minutes, so this this last game and the game in Salt Lake, um, was about the Timbers' dominance, their tactics, their progression as a team, certain players playing better. And how much was it just about RSL playing poorly? Dan, you really got right to it, didn't you? (laughs) We need like 30 minutes to build up to an answer to that because it definitely seems like there's a balance there. To me, going back to our show before the first game in Salt Lake, I just didn't think Salt Lake was a very good team. Seven to one over two games, though, hints that the Timbers are doing something right. I guess after reading this question earlier, I kind of said to myself, the Timbers have undoubtedly shown progress because they were so inconsistent before these two games. But it's really difficult to tell how they're going to match up in the playoffs because Real Salt Lake, to me, is 
a distant seventh when you want to rank the West teams. The standings say they're right there with the Galaxy. I'd be way more scared of the Galaxy than Salt Lake. Yeah, I think the Timbers, talking about this game, I mean, every time Salt Lake had the ball early in the game, I mean, they tried to build out the back, they turned it over. They tried to, um, they kicked it out of bounds. They, it just seemed like they were so poor with the ball, especially early in the game that, like you said, the Timbers had no reason really to feel all that threatened by them, even when they had possession. And I think it's they weren't that bad the entire time or in this entire 180 minute stretch but the timbers came up with a game plan they used as we've talked about the 4231 formation it was very effective against salt lake they looked comfortable in that and salt lake just didn't threaten them um when they had the ball all that often so it will be interesting to see sort of uh as the timbers are building momentum right now i, I think a lot of people have compared this to 2015 when they won the last three games of the regular season. How much this is about them playing Salt Lake, and then we'll see it against Vancouver, but another sort of weak team against another Vancouver. Another not real test, right? So whether this is about them building momentum towards the playoffs and finally you know, peaking at the right time, or whether there's going to be a shock when they come into the knockaround against a much better team. Yeah. For me, the biggest concern going into this last month was consistency more than anything else. And it is kind of disturbing that between the two games against Salt Lake, the game against Dallas, and we've seen how Dallas has played since, that there isn't much of a test. But we have seen other points in the season where the Timbers have been able to compete with the best in the league. So we know that that peak is there somewhere. I guess I'm somewhat reassured that the consistency problem seems to be solved, that the focus is there. But I also come away from Sunday's game thinking that 30 minutes in the middle where Salt Lake's best chances were off two corner kicks. They also had a cross for Jao Plata, who didn't even get it on frame. A couple other good chances. I just think that better teams punish the Timbers during that time. And the Timbers cannot go these 30 minutes like that. Now, the question is, after that goal... And after the 4-1 to in RSL, did they kind of let off the gas kind of thinking, well, RSL is below our level. They won't have that same kind of mental shift against better teams. I don't know. Um, I guess we're going to have to see, and we're going to see 10, I guess, what, 9 or 10 days from now, uh, whether it happens. I'm a little worried about it, though. Do you think that um, in terms of, I think one thing in terms of building consistency in this uh, last two games that we've seen in both games is the four, two, three, one. And I, I think you've seen, um, you know, certain players being pretty effective in the, this formation, Polo, Guzman, I think Blanco, who's done really well in all the formations he, and all of the positions he's been asked to play this year, yeah. but really doing well in these last two games. Do you think that this is the formation that the Timbers are going to stick with? going forward is this their lineup information is this what they've settled on or is this really more of a this is what worked against salt lake oh boy i feel like we keep trying to find reasons to go (laughs) back on something we agreed to a few weeks ago is that we cannot we should not predict giovanni savarese we've we've seen too many times whether he's gone back to different looks or come up with completely new looks that giovanni savarese remains a bit unpredictable but i I do get why you're asking this. I want to ask it too. There is something that feels almost native about the 4231. Yep. Like this is a quality to the team that is endemic to their success in a way that even during the six game winning streak, when they didn't play this formation at all, it just didn't feel like the Timbers were as comfortable in the way that they're yep. playing. I mean, what do you think? I definitely like the idea of maintaining the option to go to two forwards, play the diamond midfield, but I'm not convinced that that is actually better in the abstract than the way they're playing now. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for consistency at this point 
in the season in terms of lineup and in terms of formation, trying to build momentum, trying to build that consistency and not trying to make too many changes. I don't know since this is Giovanni Savaresi's first year in MLS, if he thinks the same way, but I would like to see the Timbers continue with the four, two, three, one. I think Davi Guzman has been a lot better in, in this formation. I, I think that the Timbers do, as you said, look comfortable. I mean, this is a formation this team has played in um, for years uh, prior to this year, and it's the formation that the Timbers were building towards when they built their roster early before the season. They brought Polo in to be a winger, not to be sort of that central midfielder. Blanco is used to playing on that left side as sort of an inverted winger. And so I think this is a very natural formation for a lot of these players. It didn't work early in the year, and they were really worried, I think, about the defense and that was a big part of needing to maybe go to that for a while for three two one um and, and even a five uh five three two that they did um but the defense is also playing really well right now i, I think the timbers are up to 10 clean sheets on the year if i counted that right and it, as long as they don't have to have that worry about we need to protect the defense which i don't think they need to at this point mm-hmm. i think this formation makes a lot of sense to can keep going with the 4321 or at least they can't ascend to their best selves if they have to keep protecting yeah. the defense and when you have liam ridgewell and laris mabiala back there i think everybody who watches this team closely knows that they're they're both very good and they actually haven't just played together that much this year they haven't even logged a thousand minutes together this year and they've only played two or three games this year away from home, the first two games of the year. I think they played together in San Jose also. So it remains to be seen whether they can take this great form that they flash every time they're at Providence Park and apply it away from home. But I think you were talking about the four-two-three-one formation. We talked about Jeremy Abobasi's fit. I think it's been great. I think it continues to show how great it is. Um, we saw this weekend in the second half when Real Salt Lake was getting a lot or having a lot of success going down their right side. Giovanni Savarese was able to flip his wingers, put Andy Polo a little bit better defensively over there and help out. So that's good. We've talked about David Guzman these last couple of weeks. But really, we've seen Diego Chara shine. We've seen yeah. Sebastian Blanco shine. Who, which of those two players do you think is Portland's MVP this year? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question because the Timbers, I, I, I know we've talked about whether this is really an anomaly or whether it's that the Timbers cannot play without Chara, but they still have not won without Chara dating back to 2015. And so the team, I think, is capable of performing without Blanco, but obviously he's been their best attacker this year. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to go with Diego Chara on this one. I just just don't see this team. They have not shown that they can win without him. They have shown they can win without Blanco. Yeah, I I personally don't think it's that close. I can respect people who do say that uh, Sebastian Blanco has done enough, particularly as he becomes the key danger person in attack, to get that honor. The supporters voted him MVP this year, although we know that supporters factor in a lot of different things when they vote for that. But on the field, to me, it's been Diego Chara. I I think the Portland community has always been really, really good about trumpeting how good Diego Chara is to the extent that they want to bring other people's attention to it. People around the league who don't talk about Diego Chara enough. And I feel like this year there has been a little bit more nat- national coverage of Diego Chara. I feel like he's had as good a year this year as he's ever had in Portland. Um, and this year, the way this team has had to evolve, I feel like he's been by far their most valuable player. So instead of bringing this in the listener questions, Malcolm actually asked, do you think that Chara is the best, most consistent, and most valuable player that this team has had 
um, in their MLS era during his whole time here. Yeah, I actually don't think it's that close. Yeah. I, part, part of that is because he did uh, play in the first year here. Uh, so except for a few months, he's been here the whole time. Uh, and I think that even those years where Diego Valeri has been more valuable to him, maybe even uh, Fernando Adi had a, a spell where he was more valuable. Will Johnson had a year where he was more valuable. I just think that there's never been a point where Chara wasn't one of the top three or four players on this team. And over the course of eight seasons, that definitely wins out. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I think that, um, yeah, in certain moments, the other players have been more valuable. But Chara's made at least, I think, 28 starts in every single season since he became a Timber. That's incredible. And so he's been in this lineup the majority of the time. And he's been very important for the Timbers every time he's on the field. And yeah. it's clear, especially over the last few years, how difficult it is for the Timbers when he's not on the field. Yeah. So. And again, you talked about it. Like It seems, it seems anomalous like because there's no pure explanation as to why. Just out of pure <laughs> luck, they haven't won one of these games in the past. What is the number now? 19, 20 games? They, they have won? to look back at this point. And yeah. I think it's at least 20 at this point. Yeah. Um, and they've only won seven times without him in eight years which is pretty crazy because I think he's missed like 37 games. But it's still a fact. Whether that exaggerates it or not, the facts are there. And he is really that important. Uh, Somebody else that was important on Sunday is somebody that we didn't even think was going to factor into the Timber (laughs) seasons because he hasn't been a Timber for that long. Steve Clark, which is two huge saves. Before halftime on Kyle Beckerman, after halftime on Justin Glad. I think that's part of the reason why it's so hard to judge Sunday's performance because the Timbers really were that close to having a real fight yeah. on their hands. On the other hand, they have a quality goalkeeper in Steve Clark now to back up Jeff Antonella, who at this point we're not sure exactly when he's going to be back. I mean, Jeff Antonella was in the 18, and, and Savarese said going into the game that he was healthy. And so I see this more, and we'll have to ask more this week, but I see this more as like a precautionary thing more of not wanting to push Jeff Nell too soon, especially after the issues with his shoulder. I think, and we'll see. I also thought this last week, so I could be wrong, but I think we'll see Jeff Nell back in there um, in this game because I think ideally if the Timbers have the option, they would like to have him in a game before going into the playoffs, get him you know, a little bit more minutes and back in the groove of things. I Like you said, Steve Clark came up big with two two big saves, I also think those are saves that Adonella makes. The reaction saves, you they are very good saves, but they are saves that I think you hope your goalkeeper is going to make. I love that you said that because this seems to be the one of the issues that I have. It doesn't seem to be one of the issues I have. <laughs> it is one of the issues I have whenever people talk about goalkeeping. They point at these great saves, which undoubtedly are great, but a lot of the great saves we see on highlights, they're saves that goalkeepers are supposed to make at this level. This kind of athleticism that you see, the reactions, these are things that most goalkeepers have when they reach this level. What they, what every goalkeeper doesn't have is the decision-making ability, the kind of field game. And I think that's where Jeff Antonella, to me, I have a lot of more faith in that. And I think maybe that's mostly because I just haven't seen Steve Clark as much as I've seen yeah. Jeff Antonella up close. But there have been times during the stretch that Antonella has been out that I, I have frankly thought that chances would have been prevented by Jeff Antonella's decisions. Yeah. Um, I think unless there's anything else you want to add on that game, let's talk about this weekend. Well, I, before we talk about okay. this weekend's game, I still, I want to hear your overall <laughs> view because I think I mentioned that I, I'm still not sure 
how good this Timbers team is. I know, I feel like they have a high floor. Like there's the floor is not going to drop out from them. I don't know what their ceiling really is. In moments, over 90 minutes of time, yeah, I feel like they can compete with anybody in the league. I think they've shown that. But over the course of five, six playoff games, I'm not exactly sure that they have a ceiling that's going to allow them to go on a 2015-esque run. What do you think? I think the defense was a huge part of 2015. I think the Timbers are getting to a point where you feel fairly confident in their defense and maybe that's something that can be a strength for them in in the postseason mm-hmm. um i think that's a that was a huge part of the 2015 run so if they yeah. can get that right i think that puts them in a good position in the playoffs i'm still concerned overall i think about the attack um going into a playoff run i think blanco has carried this team i think abobasi has shown well but is he really at the level you need your forward to be at to really go on a tremendous run. I mean, compared to the level Audi was at or even Maxi Yerudi was at in the 2015 run. Armenteros has been in a slump. He, on paper, looks like a good guy to have coming off the bench, um, kind of like Maxi Yerudi was, but we haven't seen that production from him. We didn't uh, see him late. at all this weekend. Yeah, we didn't see him at all. I mean, maybe it's Milano coming off the bench. We don't yeah. even know who the number two forward really is at this moment. It'll be interesting to see what they do in Vancouver. And Diego Valeri, I, I, I think he's been impactful, but the assists and goals, uh, he's been uh, not been consistent with that either recently. So yeah. that's not necessarily the point you want Diego Valeri at going into playoffs. So I think if the defense can kind of be where it's been at, but again, playing teams like Salt Lake is not necessarily Dallas, who's fading, is not necessarily the best uh, sample size. Um but if the defense can can be a strength for them going to the playoffs, I think that's a major bonus for any team. I'm still not sure if the attack's where they want it to be um, to make sort of a 2015-type run. Yeah, I think you and I both would feel better if either Abobasi or Valeri were scoring some more goals. Abobasi has been scoring some, but you look at his track record, I don't think he's ever going to be like the the prodigious goal scorer. He's going to be the more all-around guy. And, Larry's going to have to pitch some in. We've seen Milano found that one against Salt Lake. I don't think he's ever going to have another goal like that again, but I think you and I sound like we're in the same place. So that leads to Sunday's game, 130 kickoff at BC Place in Vancouver, the last game of the season. I suppose we have to set up what this game actually means because Vancouver, it means nothing. They were eliminated this weekend after a draw against Los yeah. Angeles FC. For the Timbers, it could potentially mean nothing too. It's up to what Seattle and Dallas do. Yeah, um, no. For Vancouver, there's no even Cascadia Cup implications. I think 2016, when the Timbers won up there in Vancouver, still couldn't make playoffs. I believe too, they at least had the Cascadia Cup. If I'm remembering the year correctly, um, the Timbers. I remember. I do very vividly remember Vancouver celebrating the Cascadia Cup on the field while the Timbers. Yeah, my memory is bad. For some reason, I thought that the Timbers would have won Cascadia Cup also if they won that. But I no, they uh, might. They might have. But I'm okay, saying, yeah. I think. I think that's what Vancouver had to play for in that 2016 game. They really have nothing to play for in this game except pride and playing sort of a rival. And their jobs and, next year because Carl yeah. Robinson's already gone. But at the same time. So we'll see how much of a motivation is. We'll also see how much of a letdown Vancouver is sort of having after last week, you know, getting eliminated. It's the the game that comes immediately after they got eliminated from uh, playoff contention. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of the Timbers situation, it's it's very interesting in terms of potential seating implications for the Timbers. Uh, if Dallas or Seattle loses, a tie wouldn't be wouldn't matter if they if either of those team loses the timbers would be able to then pass whatever team loses with a win um that's banking on a lot because seattle's hosting san jose 
12th place team in the West, last place team in the West. And uh, Dallas is going to Colorado, who has been better at home, but is still eliminated, still 11th place team in the West. Yeah. And so you would think that both those teams are capable of getting a win or a draw on those games, but there is that possibility. And if the Timbers have an option to move into fourth or third place, that's something they would definitely want to take because hosting a knockout game, the Timbers are going to be in the knockout round, but hosting a knockout game makes a huge difference. Since uh, the format was instituted in 2012, 15 of the 20 games have been won by the home team. Yeah, and which makes sense because the home team is usually the better team. Yeah. In addition to the causation abound teams just playing better at home. Yeah. The teams that Seattle and Dallas are playing, that's the most worrisome part. Seattle's history against San Jose is very much like Portland's history against San Jose. Down there in San Jose, <laughs> something happens and they tend to not do well. At home, it's not so much of an issue. Yeah. I think given the way that Seattle is playing... 13 of 15... 13 wins in the last 15 games. It feels like they haven't lost since 1989. <laughs> uh, I think it would be wishful thinking to think that Seattle is going to come back to the pack there. Dallas, Dallas is something totally different. They just seem wayward. Last year, they fell apart at this time of the season, too. Maybe they can go to Colorado and lose, but they would have to lose, like you said. Um, if, you, if you're at Portland, I think you have to play for the next day. We've been trumpeting the Timbers' depth all year. Use that depth. You can rotate four, five, six players, still have a team that's capable of beating Vancouver while addressing the reality that you're going to have to play in three or four days after that. You might have to travel. If Dallas ends up being the team that you face, you're going to have to travel across time zones. I think you have to pl- you have to plan to have your best team in place for the midweek games and then hope that Colorado or San Jose help you out. But don't bet on that because those are bad teams. Yeah, uh, I think that's. I agree with that. I, I don't. I will be surprised if we see Portland's top lineup in Vancouver. I think they would like to win this game, but you, the Timbers actually haven't been good this year. The, the, when you look at their worst stretches, they haven't of the been season, good this year. No, I don't mean in general. I should. I should have. I shouldn't have stopped. <laughs> We've taken that a turn. Time. Yeah. No, I shouldn't have stopped that. Time. They haven't been good on short rests this right. year. When you look at the stretches of the season that they had their worst performances, the coming after the 15 game on being streak, that those 11 games after that, there was two or three compacted schedules during that time, and, and that was a huge part of them dropping points. I mean, they looked bad in the compacted schedules. They did not handle them well. There was a few of them that I think they were okay in. I, I think that but final the, at one. At home, though, it was always the midweek games at home. Against yeah. Toronto, two to nothing, they looked de- decent. Toronto had to rotate their yeah. team. Against Columbus, they looked less than decent. Columbus had to rotate their team. Those were the only good showings yeah. during those three and seven, three and eight stretches. So maybe that underscores the way you started this, the importance of being at home. Because if they are going to get... Uh, have to play on short rest. You want to increase your chances of doing it at home. But at the same time, I think you have to plan for the day that Colorado and San Jose lose their games to good teams. (laughs) I think that they need to plan so that it, it doesn't feel quite like a short rest turnaround and that the key players are not on the field. Yeah. Um, So So who would you rest? I I think you have to rest Liam Ridgewell. Okay. Uh, I, I think, he is not someone that you're going to want on short rest, especially going away twice in a row. Okay. Um, Larry Smobiela has shown, I think he can do that. So you, you keep him in the lineup. Ooh. I think you, you, I think you keep one of your center backs in the lineup. Um, uh-huh. but I, that is an option. I, I think likely you rest Valeri, um, okay. or at least have him on the bench. Uh, I think maybe you make 
I think it would make sense to give Armenteros a shot in this game just yeah. to see sort of where he's at That's going into playoffs. I, I feel like Obobese being a young kid, the rest might not be as important, but I think mm-hmm. it's important to get um, Armenteros on there. I think maybe with Chara, you either rest him or sort of limit his minutes, have him be your first sub out of the game or something like that. Yeah, I think for me, Chara and... Uh, Mabiala would start but get pulled at 45 or 60. Yeah. I'd also rest Valentin. Valentin's had the one of the highest workloads of the team. Which th- is an easy one with Powell coming in too. Again, seeing where someone else is at going into playoffs. And I would also rest Polo. Uh, Polo has had to do a lot of running this year. He had international duty for Peru. So I would probably maybe start Lucas Milano at, at right wing and Samuel Armenteros up top. But I, I honestly wouldn't be scared to change six or seven of these guys. The Timbers do have that level of depth. The people that you mentioned, Armenteros. We didn't mention Bill Tuilone. He's played well this year. Julio Cascante. We did mention Alvis Powell, or you alluded to Alvis Powell. There's talent on this team. If you're, if you're not going to use your depth, why pay for it? I think this is where you use your depth. And I think it's a good opportunity to give some of these players some minutes and see where they're at going into playoffs, assuming the Timbers, if the Timbers can get past the knockout round, kind of seeing where the competitions are really at with some of these players and who can be the most effective sub, maybe coming off the bench and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. All right, let's, uh, let's ask a listener question, and then we'll talk about T2 for a little bit because T2 ended their season this weekend. We want to acknowledge that. But let's go to Heath's question. Heath asks, Giovanni Savarese had a very impressive first season as head coach. Hmm, interesting. What are his chances of being named MLS Coach of the Year? Obviously, I added my own editorial uh, comment to this um, by reacting to that first statement. <laughs> I, you know, being on social media, you hear every every edge of the spectrum on this. Some people have doubted Giovanni Savarese all year, I think with uh, good reason that I have almost always disagreed with. And then some people are like Heath and feel like, hey, ultimately, as you, I think you noted this uh, recently, the Timbers are going into this last game with a chance to tie a tub club record for points in a season. So how do you evaluate Giovanni Savarese's first year? I think you have to say it's a successful first year. I, I think maybe if this wasn't his first year, second, third, fourth year, and they go into playoffs and they get eliminated early or something like that, you can't look at it with the same same perspective. You might say this wasn't as successful. But given it's his first year, he inherited a lot of these players. He It's a brand new league for him. There's adjustments he's had to make. There's things he's had to learn throughout the season. I mean, he talked about it when it came to the compacted schedules. Uh, he felt like he mismanaged the first compacted schedule that the Timbers had, where I believe they lost three in a row. Vancouver, um, D.C., and, and Sporting. Yeah, and he tried to make adjustments after that. And I think he's been trying to figure out what the best formation for this team is. There's been a lot of things that you only deal with really when you're a new coach. And I, I think overall he's done well to get this team to buy in, to execute the game plans, to be in a position where they are capable of switching between formations, even though that's not something that many of these players are used to from the last few years. Yeah. I think it's been a successful season for Savarese. I think making playoffs sort of solidifies it as a successful season. He's definitely going to be back next year. I would be shocked if he wasn't. And he'll have the chance to be more involved, be fully involved in the offseason and building his team. I also think there's a 0% chance he gets named Coach of the Year. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think that the team has been too inconsistent for there to be a narrative that's formed around the team that propels his candidacy. What I mean by that is when people sit down to vote, they're going to look at Giovanni Savarese's name and not have any kind of story in their head as to why they should put him at the top of the ballot. And quite frankly, there are other coaches in the league that I think have handled their seasons wonderfully. I'm somebody that thinks Ben Olsen deserves a lot of credit for not only 
DC's rise through the end of the year, even though that's been fueled a lot by Wayne Rooney. But when you look at the obstacles coaches are handed at the beginning of the year and say, these are the challenges you have, they played something like two of their first 20 games at at quote-unquote home, but they were playing in Boyd's, Maryland, where the Washington (laughs) Spirit played. So I don't even know if you could count that as a home game. And he's got them playing like the second or third best team in the league at this point of the season. So credit to him. I think Giovanni Savarese has done a very good job, but as you alluded to, there was one stretch of games in the season where he has admitted that he... Uh, I don't know if he's used the word mistake, but that's definitely the the tone that he has kind of said. He's, he's accepted responsibility for that. I also think we have to look back on the decisions that were made around Fernando Adi and wonder if the team had to do that all over again, would they do it the same way? Because like we talked about earlier in this show, goal scoring is maybe the biggest question around this team going into the last uh, part of the season. And then Samuel Armenteros' future isn't settled at this point, too. So I think that's uh, something. And there are other little things. I think that Savarese has essentially had to buy knowledge this year. And he's had to pay for it with points at some times. I think it's going to serve him well the coming years. But I think that also counts against his candidacy this year. Um, Let's go to one question that you had highlighted. Um, Next question. Now that the Timbers are in the playoffs, are they true contenders or underdogs to win it all? Um, I say underdogs. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think they're underdogs to get out of the knockout round, most likely. Um, I would not bet on them at this point, uh, getting to that conference semifinal. I expect them, um, as we sort of talked about, I think it's a very low probability that they move into fourth or third place. I expect them to finish in fifth. Um, we talked about Seattle and Dallas, but I think it's a, potentially even more likely that the teams that the Timbers end up facing LAFC or Kansas City because those two teams play each other on the final day of the regular season, and so one of them is going to have to drop points, assuming Dallas and Seattle win. I think that they're probably going to move up the standings, so I think the Timbers very likely are going to go to Kansas City or LAFC. Both those teams overall have been playing well. Mm. Uh, I think Dallas probably is the opponent that's in the worst form and the one that the Timbers would like to travel to. I don't see that based on... We'll see if that's potentially where they're going to travel to, but I think Dallas playing Colorado kind of gives them an opportunity to get out of uh, that position. Um, it's, so I think the Timbers are going to go somewhere really tough for a knockout game. So I think they're going to be underdogs going into that. I think it's going to be unlikely that they advance past that. If they do... That would already in and of itself be an impressive um, result. And, and if they make a real run this year, like we've talked about, the consistency, we don't really know if they're really coming into form. We don't really know if this is a this is how they perform against weaker teams at Salt Lake at this season or if they've really shifted and turned a corner. Right. Yeah, I, I they were underdogs in 15, um, so it could happen. But uh, I am not looking at the Timbers as a clear contender at this moment. It's it's weird. Let me t- well, you tell me if this makes sense. I look back at the Timber season. They've had some poor results. I think the one that stands out most against a good team is the Red Bulls result, but that was so far ago, yeah. long ago that you almost discard it because it's not con- it's not really part of what the team's identity is now. But you look at single game scenarios and I think the Timbers against good teams have when they're in the right place consistently performed well going back to that third game of the year against Dallas at Atlanta, at home against New York City FC, at LAFC, the games, the three games against Seattle where I thought they outplayed them each time. So in the playing round, I almost like the Timbers' chances better than I like them in a scenario where they have to beat a team over 180 minutes, they have to come up with two game plans, not one, and then teams like Seattle and Kansas City, 
those two teams in particular that have proven themselves over the course of a season have a longer period of time to try to knock the Timbers out. And that goes back to, I think we talked about this last week, I would almost rather face Seattle in the play-in round, the knockout round, than later in the tournament. Yeah, I, I think the Timbers have had some really good games against better teams but they haven't been one-offs in this sense you know there have that the other team hasn't had the season on the line in the way they both teams are going to have it true, here true. and the only game that you can point to where that was really the case was the u.s open cup game at lafc that the timbers i i didn't think had a terrible performance but i thought they were fine lafc was be- just better yep and it was it was a big difference from two days before when the Timbers were able to get that scoreless draw with LAFC and the Timbers both putting out pretty strong lineups and taking it pretty seriously. LAFC at home just won. Yeah. They were just better. And, and so I don't know what this Timbers team is going to look at look like against potentially a team that's been in really good form and is playing at home mm-hmm. and, and is much better than the competition they faced recently. I think kind of bottom line you want fc dallas out of all yes. these teams even galaxy well i guess there are six possibilities you want fc dallas or Real Salt lake if you can't get either of those you want the galaxy i think if you can't get either of those you're you're dealing with the teams that you want to avoid i think kansas city and uh seattle to me are the two teams you want to avoid and then lafc is closer to that level than i think they are to galaxy's level yeah i, I think it's clear I, I mean in any sort of playoff scenario you don't want the teams that are playing their best soccer at that time. You you don't <laughs> want the teams that are peaking at the right time. And that's why the Timbers were so far hard in 2015, even though maybe the standings didn't show that. Yeah. They were peaking at the right time. And so, yeah, all, Seattle is in crazy form. Um, I, I would be very worried about that game. And I, I think Kansas City and LAFC are similar for me. And, yeah, Dallas is not going the right direction. If they drop points to Colorado, they likely, I think – even if they get that tie, would likely be the team that the Timbers would have to go on the road and face. That's probably their best bet. I, I think, the, obviously, the Timbers would love to face Salt Lake, but I, I think them moving into third no. um, is like a 5% chance. Yeah, that's... Don't Let's not hold our breaths about that one. And let's move on from the playoff scenarios because I think we've talked about, in one way or another, just about every scenario yeah. we can. Let's move to the Chris Ryanford Memorial Hot oh, Take T2. Interview. You still have to do T2. T2. Thank you very much. So for people that did watch the game last Friday, it does seem like so long ago at this point as we're recording here on Tuesday, but 3 to nothing victory by Phoenix Rising FC. Little bit deceiving because T2 were the better team until Didier Drogba scores yeah. <laughs> his direct kick goal. Uh, unfortunately, Austin Pack had to be called into action in goal. Third string goalkeeper for T2 forced into action due to injuries to Kendall McIntosh and Alex Mangles. Uh, couldn't deal with Didier Drogba's knuckleball. <laughs> uh, second half, Phoenix Rising with some better chances. Overall, just... Um, I guess a, an unfortunate end to the season, three to nothing, but a good chance to stop and get some perspective on what T2 was this year. Jamie, you looking in on this, uh, how do you think we should judge T2 season? Yeah, I, I think overall it's a success, success, successful season. Um, obviously, it would have been nice to see them go further in the playoffs. I, I think the main objective this year um, along with continuing to develop talent, which I think there are some real prospects at the T2 level that you can look at now um, with Loria, Zambrano, Langsdorf, and, and say these players look like they could be able to make the transition. 
uh, to yeah. the first team. We'll see how that pans out. But I think after the 2017 season, where, where they were by far the worst team in USL, they needed to be a competitive team this year. They needed to show that they can develop players in a true in a really competitive environment, not just um, have a place for players to play. And I think they met that goal. I mean, this was a competitive team. They came up against a opponent they had beaten on the road before, but a tough opponent in, in this first round uh, of playoffs. And, and it, they didn't put in a terrible performance. Um, I, I think making playoffs and being the first time that T2 makes playoffs and the season they put in overall, I, I think is a sign that this team club is now moving in the right direction. Yeah, losing Kendall McIntosh when they did, I thought was a big loss. Uh, not only one of the better goalkeepers in USL, but a key component of this team is somebody who, who had two years of experience at that level. At 24, he's one of the more mature people on the team. And then just, you know, if you if you know Kendall McIntosh, you know what kind of person he is to have as a setting influence amongst a group like that. Losing Victor Arboleda, obviously he was not playing with them for most of the season. But when he came back, came off the bench, t- scored two goals immediately, and then he had a knee injury in Sacramento. So that really hurt. That took them from a team that could beat anybody to a team that was, to me, had to be more plucky than anything else. But beyond just the record and beyond making the playoffs, I think one of the things that the Timbers will always evaluate the USL team on is the ability to produce talent. Yeah. Kendall McIntosh, to me, is somebody that's proven he can be an MLS or has the talent to be an MLS backup goalkeeper. Renzo Zambrano, Marvin Loria, I think they can be MLS players. We talked about Foster Langsdorf. It'll be interesting to see what happens with him because the debate between him and Jeremy Obobese is proving so informative, not only in how we talk about forwards, but how Giovanni Savarese views his forwards. We're starting to see now that Jeremy Obobese, even though he hasn't put up prodigious goal numbers at T2, I think he has five goals and 34 career appearances at USL. He has this all-around game that makes him so valuable. And it's kind of the opposite for Foster. Foster puts up the traditional numbers you want from your forwards. And a lot of people, that's what forwards are supposed to do. And of course, they're supposed to score goals. But I think he'll, he even admits it. The rest of his game needs to be developed. So it'll be interesting to see what step he takes next year in that regard. Uh, if you can get two, three, four players, in addition to Marco Farfan, I think making big strides at T2 this year, which is dis- we talked about this last week, is disappointing to some people because they want him to be making those strides at T1. But if you get four or five people, Adam Odu Jadama in there, that can then contend for spots the next preseason, that's a successful USL year. And I think I think that's the part that's still up in the air, though. I, I think we're looking at these players and they seem like they could mm-hmm. contend for spots next year. And that's what we still have to see because the Timbers still have to show that T2 is effective in producing players for the first team. And there's a lot of prospects that I, I think are really exciting that we've seen this year. Now it's a question and we can fully judge how good this season was for t2 based on where these players go next year yeah that's that's something only time can solve yeah but overall i think that t2 has given people a lot of reason to be excited about the project and hopefully next year people can approach the season with a little bit more optimism because it really wasn't until the first couple of months of this year or after they returned from their big road trip to start the season that people had reason to believe that t2 really was going to be different this year all right No hot takes there amongst our T2 analysis. (laughs) Let's move on and try to have some real hot takes. Jamie, you and I have been lacking all year in this Memorial Hot Take interlude. We're approaching this like respectable people who don't want to go out on the ledge and say something that people are going to uh, really find discordant with their views. So I'm expecting you to bring some heat here today, Jamie Goldberg. Tell us what your hot take is. We'll see. Uh, I don't I don't know how people are going to feel about this one. Probably They'll probably disagree. We'll see. Maybe not. Um, I think 
decision day this year in MLS is going to be pretty boring. Uh, I think that there's, there's a lot of seeding implications going on in both the Eastern and Western Conference, and I, I guess that's a little interesting. But we have five teams in each conference that have already clinched. I remember, I think in 2015, there was all these questions going into decision day. The Timbers hadn't even clinched in 2015 going into that game against Colorado. And there was all this excitement around that day. Seating implications just don't bring the excitement enough for me. I mean, it's fun to sort of, like I, I said care, earlier. I could care less. Yeah. I'm, with, I'm so with you on this. It's fun to, like, like I said, it's fun to sort of figure out the different uh, things that could happen with sort of like looking at the standings. But when it comes to actually on the field... I, I'm just not that interested. When we're talking about whether the Timbers are going to sub their players on decision day, this is <laughs> the not play their top lineup. Uh, I think this is a sign that this is just as much as MLS is going to want to hype this final day of the season. It's it was sort of over this last weekend. It's not going to be that interesting going into this game. What is MLS's best kind of promotional activity? Because we have decision day, we have rivalry week. Uh, I, I'm I'm sure that there are other things. Yeah, almost All Star Game, I guess. All Star Game. We can call about talk about the Audi Performance Index. <laughs> Whatever. Like, what that is, is the what is the most successful MLS marketing initiative today? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Decision Day could be cool if there was actually you know more than one. Or I mean, I guess in Salt Lake I they're going to be watching LA and well, rooting, rooting. I was for thinking about this too. Like Decision Day, there are no decisions that are being made. Play, teams are just going out and playing like they do every weekend. Maybe the stakes are higher, but then. Really, decision day kind of, to me, more applies to like the last day of the transfer window when teams and players are making their decisions. But that's deadline day. But in a sense, Sunday is a deadline. It's a deadline for the regular season. Well, now you're just getting, getting pedantic. About the worst. That, this is my hot take. The I'm going to be pedantic about marketing yeah. terms. No, I agree with you. Um, and I think that's kind of been our tone throughout this show is that we're trying to give Sunday's game the attention it deserves. And I think we have. But ultimately, win, lose, or draw, I don't think it's really going to... For me, it doesn't really change that much. It changes, of course, who the Timbers might be playing, but it really doesn't change my outlook on the Timbers that much. At this point, I think the Timbers are going to carry the same questions into the postseason that they have right now. Yeah. No matter what, they're going to play on Wednesday or Thursday of next week, and they're going to likely be going on the road to somewhere. (sighs) One of four places. Jamie, my hot take is hotter than yours. <laughs> At right. least in the sense that I know that nobody's going to like this. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. So you actually wrote an article about this yesterday, about Kyle Beckerman's uh, saucy reaction to <laughs> Sunday's game, where he was implying that certain elements of the Timbers team lacked class. Uh, and he kind of you know, said something nice implicitly about Giovanni Savarese, saying that, hey, you would expect somebody coached by that guy would have class. <laughs> so... I understand why people didn't concentrate on that because that's not what Beckerman was really getting at. What he was really getting at was at least one timber, maybe more, acting in not nice ways to a guy who has a reputation himself of acting not nicely to people. (laughs) And in fact, as you pointed out in your article, a fortnight ago, he was very not nice to (laughs) David Guzman and Diego Valeri. And of course... People have been going in on Kyle Beckerman. He has like 18 years worth of experience doing this. So there's 18 years worth of fans that are ready to go, ha ha, Kyle Beckerman. I guess my general take is, look, most teams in this league have a Kyle Beckerman. So a lot of people that are pointing at Kyle Beckerman and doing the Simpsons Nelson ha ha, you've probably rooted for a Kyle Beckerman before. Seattle fans? Maybe the most important player in your franchise's MLS <laughs> history, Osvaldo Alonso, is very much a Kyle Beckerman. 
Um, Felipe, who is in Vancouver now, was with Red Bulls before, a very important player for them, is a Kyle Beckerman. Will Johnson maybe was the most uh, <laughs> Kyle Beckerman. And although we know around the league that, that people see Diego Chiraz as Kyle Beckerman when he's not, the Timbers do have a Kyle Beckerman in Sebastian Blanco right now. I just think there's a pot kettle situation here that I kind of want to bring up because Kyle Beckerman is actually one of the nicest and most accommodating guys in the league when he's not on the field. So I think that, you know, it's just I understand why people would jump on that quote because Kyle Beckerman wouldn't have said that quote unless he wanted people to get riled up (laughs) by it. But I think we should all remember that uh, what happens between the lines sometimes isn't really indicative of the kind of person that people are. Yeah, I I mean, I I agree with that aspect. I have, I remember in 2013, my first year covering the team full time, I was in Salt Lake covering Mm -hmm. the talk, covering, sorry, the Salt Lake side before the the playoffs with the Timbers. And Kyle Beckman, like you said, came out, talked to talked to the media, answered every question, was super nice about it. I had him on the phone before easily, very easily, calling Salt like, hey, can I get Kyle Beckerman? Sure, we'll get him like in today. Right. Um, so yeah, he's a very, I, I think he is, his reputation on the field is not exactly the kind of guy he is off the field. I also think his comments were ridiculous um, because coming oh, from boy, him and gov- coming from him, specifically after the game before where everyone was talking about whether or not he deserved a red card for taking down two players basically by their head to saying classiness on the yeah. timber size is just just sort of it's, insane. It's also just like a really triggering word. Like, okay, honestly, and maybe Kyle would actually agree with this, class on the on a soccer field, like, who cares? Like, sometimes you have to get stuck into somebody. Sometimes, like Seba, you have to be a little bit of an antagonist. Sometimes you're like Samuel Armitage. you got to go put your hand behind a guy's neck and baby him a little bit and be a little bit condescending. Class is just a word you throw around when you want to gaslight somebody. That's all it is. So, inherently, that's not a very classy move to, off the field either. <laughs> but I also just think that... We could go in circles around this in every sport that has ever existed trying to say, oh, yeah, well, you said classy, but look at you on the field. You're not classy. Yeah. Guess what? It's probably like a really weird term to apply on the <laughs> soccer field to anybody. Classy, not classy, et cetera. So uh, even Diego Valeri, who is like the classiest guy that anybody else has ever known. <laughs> I can go back and find a video of him exaggerating a foul. Is yeah. that classy? Also yelling at the ref. He, he, he gets pretty intense <laughs> yeah. on the field. We're, we're, I think that when we post this video, we should just get like the Jim Halpert gif of telling people, when, like tell, him telling uh, Michael Scott what's classy and not classy. Ice sculpture, chocolate, strawberries, that's classy. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the Thorns a little bit, but just a little bit because there isn't a lot to cover here. The U.S. Women's National Team won CONCACAF Championship last week. No huge surprise there. They almost always win this tournament. I think the fact that they... I think the final scoreline against Canada was 2 to nothing, one to nothing for most of the game, so Canada could have stole a goal. But for me, Canada was playing a little bit rough, trying to stay in it in that game, and good on them. They did what it took to stay close, but the U.S. is going to the World Cup. Yeah. Canada is going to the World Cup. Uh, Jamaica is going to the World Cup, too, and Panama is going to face Argentina for the fourth spot. Yeah, the, the Jamaica-Panama game was probably the one to watch. Yeah, and the, <laughs> the Panamanian goalkeeper 
the seventeen-year-old yeah. uh, <laughs> stole stole everybody's hearts, Absolutely. and maybe she'll still end up in France next summer. Some news from the U.S. Women's National Team: They have confirmed that they are going to be playing two matches in November in Europe as Jill Elves shifts the team's focus to playing more games abroad ahead of next year's World Cup. They will be playing in Portugal. They'll be be playing in Scotland next month. And they will be playing games without their starting right back, Kelly O'Hara, who is going to have what looks like pretty routine surgery on her ankle. It almost sounds like not the same thing, but the same level of surgery that Tobin Heath had last year, yeah. where it was kind of like, this is maintenance that needs to be done, but it's not something that is going to be a major problem. And uh, Sydney LaRue had the surgery a couple of years ago after the World Cup, too. So it's not a major thing, but with her out, that increases the chances that Emily Sonnet will see more time next month. Yeah, and I think it's a big opportunity for Son to sort of, if she does have goals, you know, still of trying to get that starting spot to to show what she can do in, in, in games where she's not competing quite as much for minutes. So I, I think she'll get an opportunity, and this is one of those situations when someone's injured, someone's out, and someone else comes in, that player needs to take that opportunity if they want to keep seeing those minutes. And I think her biggest competition with O'Hara not there is going to be Chicago Red Stars' Casey yep. Short, who's been dealing with her own ankle issues throughout this whole year. I don't know where Casey Short's ankle is right now. Uh, my impression was at the end of the season, it still wasn't in a great place, but she was in the last camp, and she's going to be in the next one too, probably. Other news around the Thorns is the W League loans have finally been confirmed, <laughs> although they've been confirmed for some time through the W League teams, but... I think everybody, if you would have bet that the three Australians, Haley Rosso, Caitlin Ford, and Ellie Carpenter, were going to return to their teams, congratulations, you win. And if you would have bet that the other two Thorns players that were in Australia last year are going to be back with their teams, Britt Eckerstrom, Celeste Bure, congratulations, you win the most superficial prize ever because this was not difficult to predict. And not Emily Sonnet, but we, as we just discussed, yes, there's a reason why she's probably not going to Australia. Now, let's keep looking forward. W League season starts this weekend. The last game of the Timbers regular season is this weekend, too. On Sunday, Jamie, such a great prediction last week. Two to nothing. Wasn't exactly on, but boy, you got almost every other (laughs) facet of it, right? So this is pretty much the Oracle right now telling us what's going to happen on Sunday. Go ahead and take that long drive to the coast because there isn't a need to watch the game because according to Jamie Goldberg, the result's going to be... I think I think that the Timbers are going to win one to nothing. I think this is going to be a really really boring game. I think Vancouver is going to sort of be demoralized after the next week. Last week, I think the Timbers are not going to be starting their top lineup and, and sort of somewhat looking past this game. I just kind of am predicting a sort of boring game with not a ton of chances, but that the Timbers are still going to be the better team and find a way to win one nothing. Um, and my prediction, I'm going to go away from what I put in the notes here. I actually, put in the notes that we form before every show that my side bet was going to be a Jeremy Abobasi goal. I'm changing it up. Samuel Armenteros has a sense of the occasion. Samuel Armenteros is going to want to cap his regular season strong. Samuel Armenteros is going to want to put in an argument to get minutes midweek next week. Samuel Armenteros is scoring a goal in Vancouver. All right. We will see. (laughs) We will see how that goes. That would be great for the Timbers, I think, heading into playoffs if that were to happen. Get, it, get another forward on the board. I think it'll be great for post-game quotes, too, if it happens. Yeah. And I'll be there. You'll be there? I will be there, yes. You will be there. I was, so. I was kind of talking myself out of not going to this <laughs> one after we talked about the playoff scenarios, and it doesn't look like a lot is going to be settled at BC Place, but I am going to be there. All right. So we will be there, um, but we are done recording for today. And so, oh, 
before I sign us off, I have got to do the fantasy update. Oh, boy. <laughs> Are you signing us off early because JVV Goldberg FC dropped out of the top three? <laughs> That's not why I'm signing us off early, but, but- JVV Goldberg dropped out of the top three. <laughs> Oh my so, gosh. Maybe maybe subconsciously that's what I was doing. Um, no, in third place we have Armin Terrors uh, with 1,333 points. Blood, Bath, and Beyond in second place with 1,334 place, uh, points and a new team in first place. And unfortunately, it's a, one of those dot, dot, dot situations. I need to get the full names here, but when they get sent to me, they don't have them. It's Flickin' Portland something. Um, like Portland something. Yeah. <laughs> well, when we had a dot, dot, dot situation before, somebody jumped into the comments yeah. at Stumptown Footy and let us know after, I think, two or three weeks. So hopefully that happens again. And any help that you all have. In fact, if you are a part of the Fantasy League and you see these standings coming out of a weekend and just want to let us know ahead of time, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Actually, it'd be way too awesome to even ask for it. So I'll just say that'd be awesome and not actually ask for it. So yeah, we're getting to the end of Fantasy. And like I said, we are. I'm working on getting some prizes for the top three teams for spring and fall. So once we finish Fantasy um the fantasy league i will mention that on the pod and and people can reach out to me but that's a fantasy update for this week that's all from us uh on soccer in portland you can find us every week on timbers.com sometime footy and oregon live or you can subscribe on itunes and stitcher and until next week take care